However you might choose to define the term, Jonathan Altfelt is a master trainer of NLP. From his innovative approach to voice work in finding your irresistible voice, to his most recent genius mapping, Jonathan constantly shows us how to use NLP in the way that it was originally intended. And on top of all that, he can be pretty darn funny. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. All right, so I am here today with Jonathan Alfeld. Jonathan, welcome to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Doug, thank you so much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to chat. Now, I think of you as like famous, but I'm not sure everyone who's listening to this does. Um, we, you and I, have go go back quite a way. We've done some co-training together with the belief craft class we put together and some NLP master practitioner training we did together. Um, we've traveled in England together presenting. My brother from another mother. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You, yeah. you taught me how to do uh, Christopher Walken imitation. I don't know. Well, it was my pleasure. Well, I really appreciate it. I've gotten a lot of, uh, you know, constructive feedback about it anyway but um <laughs> but you 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 did uh, the first thing i heard of ever you is um a, a tape a tape it was a cd i think even at that point um yeah. about um enhance was it enhancing your charismatic voice or Ir- finding your irresistible voice was right. the very first cd set i produced yeah and, and it, it was a tape first actually it was a tape yeah, okay. yeah. so i'm not i'm not dating nope. that much yeah <laughs> Cool. And t- tell me about all of the, this that you've done. Give us a little bit, better bit of background. I mean, how did you get into voice work? Because that's kind of what, when you do voices like Christopher Walken or, you know, you do a dozen different voices, I think. Um, but that's part of how you develop a voice, according to, if I remember correctly from your, your. Absolutely. Paper. Yeah. Um, my, my voice work long predates my exposure to and then development in NLP, uh, all the training work that I did attended. And, you know, and then of course I met up with you and you, we took each other further, I think in many ways, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for all of that. Uh, uh, back in high school, actually middle school, I was in a boys choir. So I was a classically trained vocalist hmm. until my voice changed. And then I stopped singing and I started doing more, TV anchoring and radio work. Oh. Uh, I did some television in high school. I had a public access cable TV show uh, oh. in middle school or no high school, sorry, high school, and then did radio and TV in college as well. So I was uh, very early into voice development work. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, I even as a, as a, as a summer job, I worked in a concert series um, was at pier 84 Manhattan uh, and I got sort of nabbed one day to do the announcement over the microphone to all eight, 10,000 people in the audience. And that became a thing for, for the next summers is I would do the announcements on the microphone. I wasn't on stage. I, you know, that would have been frightening for me at the time. Uh, but I was this 15 year old kid with a deep voice doing the actual announcements 
before the concerts to... Can, can you give us a sample of what that would have sounded like? Uh, welcome to the Dr. Pepper Music Festival. Tonight we've got so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And make sure to go back into the, into the rear of the stadium and, and, and buy those beautiful foods back there, whatever, whatever. whatever. <laughs> so I would have a, a completely pre-written script that I would read from on right, the right. microphone. Did you, did you ever meet the Ramones? I did meet the Ramones. Are you, are you remembering a storyline? I think I am, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was a funny story. Uh, I, I was backstage counting programs to hand to my vendors because I was running the program session, handing out all the programs for you know a buck a piece. And uh, I remember Joey Ramone was standing, leaning up against the side of the trailer for three hours prior to the show. He never moved. He went, <laughs> never went anywhere to urinate or to do anything people do. He stood there immobile, leaning against the trailer for three hours with his sunglasses on, presumably high as a kite. Who knows? Uh, and uh, and jo Joey's brother came out of the trailer, looked at him, and then looked at us and came over to, to ask for a copy of the, of the, the program. Well, the, 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 Promoter for the series made it clear that no free programs were allowed for the band members, which is insane anyway. It was stingy. And so one of my vendors said, I'm sorry, but I have to charge you a buck. And he said, that's fine. And he gave the dollar to the kid that was working for me and went back inside. An hour later, one of my guys gets up the courage to go over to Joey Ramone, who has not moved in like two and a half hours, and said, could I have your autograph? And the guy said, yeah, but it'll cost you a buck. <laughs> that's brilliant. I don't know if that's a classic Joey Ramone story, but it was pretty funny to us. That's great. Yeah. That's a great story. So, okay. Well, I could talk to you all day. You're one of my favorite people to chat with. Um, Vice versa. And I should probably get on uh, <laughs> yeah. on track. So that was all the voice work. And then, of course, yeah. it was much later when I started doing uh, uh, voice development for people with NLP and, and hypnosis experience and wanting to improve the quality of, of their voice, make it more mellifluous, make it more rhythmic. Uh, so I started figuring out that there's something that I'm doing that other people aren't doing to produce a sound that other people want to hear more of. Mm -hmm. So I sort of reverse modeled some of the th lessons I've learned along the way and then figured out how can I construct some exercises that any neurolinguistic programmer or hypnotist could do to improve the actual instrument quality of their voice. And that became CD one of my two CD set, finding your irresistible voice. So the first CD was all about the mechanics of improving one's voice, how to produce a more mellifluous, rhythmic, uh, compelling sound. And then I thought, well, there's all kinds of wonderful patterns in NLP, actual structural patterns for becoming more influential for all the right reasons. Because, of course, there's still lots of hypnotists out there that are saying, can you go deeper? Right. That's the typical uh, inverse quote of how it's supposed to sound. And so doing exercises to improve the quality of uh, an embedded command or to improve um, how how suggestions stick. How can you create conscious response but unconscious amnesia for a suggestion right. there are all kinds of neat things that can be done there and so that became cd2 of the set and uh away we went right yeah one of the reasons i was attracted to that honestly to tell you the truth is um i had been doing nlp for a while and one of my teachers a guy named dave dobson was um 
kind of critical of the way a lot of NLP was taught. He said because um, NLP and hypnosis, because they would give lip service to the idea that communication is seven percent the word choices, thirty-eight percent tonality, you know how you how you're saying the words, and fifty-five percent of the communication comes across in the body language. He said, but then everybody spends like all their time talking about that 7%. Right. And nobody ever really effectively trains how do you change the tonality part? How do you teach that? How do you actually do that? And you're, you know, you 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 did that. And I thought, okay. I, I, Thank you. Yeah. No, it was, it was really fantastic. So I, that's why I, I got the CD. So that's where I first heard of you. I think yep. we met first at a um, Richard Bandler Richard Banner, John Laval. It was in Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was—I will say—I I didn't like you at all. <laughs> <laughs> no I'm kidding. But, um, but I, I found you really annoying because it seemed like everything was so darn easy for you. It's like uh, you're very kind. Guy. I hate that guy. Because um, <laughs> we, we I don't know if it was by, by design or whatever, you know, kismet, but we were sitting next to each other or something at some point and we, you know, did it, did some, you know, exercise together. So that's how we, right. we got to know each other. Um, but yeah, I was always, you know, very, very impressed with your proficiency and ability to, to, to seemingly master something really, really rapidly. Well, certainly that doesn't happen everywhere, but I've been blessed and lucky that at least in many NLP contexts, not all, uh, some things have been easily sponged. So I'm, uh, it's been it's been an adventure. Yeah, pretty neat. But, you know, you're, you're pretty talented yourself, both in terms of hypnosis and, and uh, music. And I always wanted to model that, too. Tell me more. <laughs> well, I mean, your, your musical background, I'm intensely jealous of in, in a positive way. Of course, I think it's wonderful. Um, and I think it. it it affects how you see. I, I'm going to turn the interview around. And I want to know more about how you do things. Uh, I think a, a musical mindset plays a very strong role in doing effective work with people. Mm. I, I concur. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So, yeah. So that was the beginning of our fated meeting. Yeah. Back in 2000 or was it 2001? It was. Oh, one of the two. Yeah. Uh, that I don't know the answer to. I was in Austin both of those two years. So I wanted one of those two visits. Yeah. So how did you get into NLP in the first place? I was doing artificial intelligence work at the time I first became exposed to NLP, uh, first so heard of it. Explain that, please. Sure. Um, my prior career was in AI, but it was specifically in the type of AI known as expert systems, or as some of my, uh, you're and my friend, uh, students and friends, customers, et cetera, know, knowledge engineering. Knowledge engineering, uh, or expert systems development is the side of artificial intelligence where we go into companies, we interview experts, we find out what they know and how they know it, and then we build software to replicate their expertise. So I was already an expertise modeler before I'd ever heard of NLP at all. This apparently is probably one of the distinctions that might set me apart from some other NLPers, um, meaning that I was already doing modeling and I was already paid to do modeling and I understood modeling, but it was a conscious modeling. So I, I knew nothing about unconscious modeling, unconscious uptake. That was a huge gaping hole in my knowledge set when I started learning about NLP. Is I go ahead. When you say conscious modeling, you're talking about you're, you're analyzing the basically the if then thought processes of, uh, of a coding system for, for AI. 
And you, you were sort of figuring out how that could be applied to what the manager is looking for in a particular business or whatever, um, how to decide if a check is going to clear in a banking system. Exactly right. Something like yeah. That. I mean, a lot of these people spend 20, 30 years developing their expertise that makes them gifted financial experts in terms of how to evaluate risk for a mortgage or how to evaluate risk for someone writing a check. Of course, that's writing checks are a thing of the past, but at the time it was it was a critical uh, core component of how people interacted financially. And so uh, other areas that require artificial, artificial intelligence would be um, whether or not to give somebody uh, a line of credit, whether or not to uh, schedule a plane or a train at a certain time. So scheduling systems were very commonly exploring AI back in the 1980s, 1990s. Okay, so that's uh, what you're referring to as decision or, or I'm sorry, conscious modeling. So you're, you're, you're tracking the conscious, logical system of making a decision. Yes, but let's clarify that. In other words, I was doing conscious modeling. Yeah. I was mapping other people's decision strategies, some of which were unconscious. To them, yeah, at the time. To yeah. them at the time. And so... Until you eked it out from them and figured out what it was consciously. Right. And the way that that worked was almost accidental. Like the first rounds of interviews with an expert, we would capture all the things they know they know, mm -hmm. right? And then we'd build a system to replicate what we captured from them consciously from their conscious minds. And then we'd build the system and it would fail miserably because there were lots of things that they knew that they didn't know they knew. Mm -hmm. And when they saw the system behaving in the way that it was programmed to behave, it would fail and they would then comment on it. Well, that doesn't take into account this other exception. What <laughs> other exception? Oh, I forgot about that one. Right? <laughs> right, right. So we would learn by accident and with multiple rounds of refinement, all the things that they had forgotten they'd learned over the years, which is true of every expert. Right. Okay, cool. So let me yeah. just stop you there because um, in NLP, NLP, much of NLP is derived from the early days of Bandler and Grinder modeling people like Fritz Perls and Virginia Satir and of course most famously perhaps Milton Erickson mm -hmm. and 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 figuring out or maybe not figuring out but modeling and I'll ask you to talk to you about this from your knowledge base um modeling in a way that it sounds quite different from what you're talking about right here indeed so would you call what they're doing unconscious modeling uh I would call what they're doing a combination of conscious and unconscious modeling they would often attempt to open up their senses so that they were seeing more, hearing more, and feeling more of what was happening in interactions with those gifted experts. And they would begin to form patterns and eke out patterns that they could observe. I was a gifted pattern matcher only of consciously acquired knowledge before I became exposed to NLP. So I think that uh, that is the distinct core, most important skill for any modeler is pattern matching. Mm -hmm. And most people don't undergo a pattern matching training process. I went through a pattern matching training process in my seven year career of doing artificial intelligence work. I had to learn how to track patterns across patterns, patterns across absences of patterns absences of patterns across patterns. So I had to learn how to chunk at different levels as I track patterns right. and not just patterns, but patterns of absences. And that's, that's what trained me. It was the artificial intelligence years that trained me to be a better pattern matcher. 
That's but it was go ahead. Yeah. So I'm just saying that's that's just so interesting to me. And and um and and I I believe that is also because of that sort of uh um disciplined way of thinking and question asking is how that probably led you to being such a I, I think gifted NLPer because you brought that sort of rigor of thinking to neurolinguistic programming so that when you learn that you you could develop the systems really rapidly in yourself. Very, very kind of you. Um, I did notice when I first started training alongside fellow students uh, who were attending the same practitioner courses, master practitioner courses, that while there were some skills that I was no faster at picking up than anyone else, things like rapport building, mm -hmm. um, things like um, uh, certain linguistic patterns, not necessarily all of them, but certain ones, um, the ability to track patterns over time seemed stronger for me, probably because of the AI background than it was for other people. Like they were, um, I was progressing at the same rate as they were for learning new single patterns to track consciously. So as we, as we learned each pattern, the other students were doing just as well as I was in some cases better, uh, at learning how to utilize and recognize certain NLP patterns. But very quickly I began to progress faster because I was, tracking the changes in those patterns over time and many of them were not because i had perhaps that that meta shifting capacity to track patterns across patterns um, and and i have to thank the ai years for that because i don't think i was born with it i just think it, it was something that was trained into me right. so i i have to think that that bandler grinder and pucelik and all the other early modelers in had some of the same pattern matching skills, but they also had the benefit that I did not when I started learning NLP of, of opening up their senses, that they had fine-tuned their awareness in a way I had not initially, and they were applying their own modeling skills to all the unconscious behaviors. And I never knew any of that until I started learning NLP. And so when I started training alongside everybody else, uh, I realized I've got this whole background in artificial intelligence in knowledge engineering. And so many people in NLP are talking about modeling, but not really doing any of it. Yeah, for sure. And, and didn't know how to do it. Then there were people who were thinking that modeling was mirroring, that mirroring is modeling. Well, it's a tiny piece of, of modeling. I mean, real modeling, I think, takes weeks or months. It's not something that happens in 30 seconds because you're observing somebody. Right. Um, and so... So I, I thought, well, here's something I could bring to the table that a lot of people in NLP have never really done before. So I put together the knowledge engineering course. And then over the years, it was, it was eventually 2004, I think, where we got to meet at, um, uh, it was um, uh, in, down in Davie, Florida at uh, Harlan's Hypnosis Clinic. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then some friends and we, we went out to lunch and we started talking about you and I doing a course together. And, uh, Soon after that, we started doing belief craft together where you were teaching the sleight of mouth. I was teaching the KE and we found it dovetailed beautifully together. Yeah. The, the it's KE, great. Knowledge engineering and the sleight of mouth. Um, and we called it for the fun of it. We called it belief craft, the crafting of beliefs. Uh, yes. And a little homage to uh, the idea of witchcraft and you know, yeah. belief craft. It was a fun class. <laughs> um, so let me ask you this. When it comes to coaching, yeah. You know, back back in, in my day, when I was first learning NLP back in the 80s, um, you know, 
nobody did coaching. I mean, they did little league coaching. They did, you know, sports coaching, that sort of stuff. But, you know, that's, that was it. Coaching didn't exist as a, as a life coaching trade didn't, didn't exist. And, um, you know, when, when we did NLP processes with somebody, we, we called them therapies and said, I'm, I'm going to do an NLP therapy with you. And I, I actually, when I started my business, I was an NLP therapist, um, back in 1990, whatever it was. <laughs> um, somewhere along the line, the word coaching came in. And I, I, I know that Thomas Leonard started it as far as, you know, non NLP coaching is concerned. But somewhere along the line, and I, I didn't notice, honestly, when it happened, but somewhere along the line, there were NLP coaches as well. And I'm just curious, what is, what is your background with coaching? And, you know, I know that you do coaching. So um, when did you start doing coaching? How did you learn about coaching? What is coaching to you? Um, mm -hmm. Go from there. Oh, so um, I, much like yourself, I, I've been observing the coaching industry growing over time. And it seems as though there are a great many people who have flocked to the common coaching schools for their fastest coaching certification that they can get. So coaching is one of the fastest growing industries in the world today, or at least was a few years back. And so there's lots of people who do coaching. And I would say the best coaches out there just would just to give us a sort of a wider perspective, the best coaches out there are people who have a really unique branding, like they have a very specific niche for where they're really, really good at coaching. Initially, I began doing coaching work, not calling it coaching, but calling it just NLP session work. But I didn't want to do therapy, like per se. I didn't want to take on therapeutic topics that were things that were easily regulated um, for much of my time as an NLP trainer, I've been living in Florida with a few breaks here and there in different places. And uh, in Florida, Florida is a practice act state, which basically meant that I couldn't take on any clients for things that are regulated by therapy or by psychology or where hypnosis is regulated. So I, I steered very clear of doing formal therapy work. And I really didn't, I wasn't attracted to doing that anyway. I wanted to take on clients who had insurmountable challenges with setting a specific goal and getting a specific result. Um, someone who needed to think a certain way and couldn't. I wanted the problem clients. I wanted the difficult ones who had already uh, maybe sought out other sources, couldn't get a solution. I figured I'll build a, a career based on taking the clients that nobody else seems to help. And I avoided, like the plague, um, uh, losing weight and stop smoking clients um, for two reasons. One of which is, uh, as for the losing weight, I'm not so congruent there, so I don't really want to take on that client. And stop smoking, I don't smoke, never have. Um, so, uh, But it doesn't interest me. In other words, I don't want to take on clients where I'm going to be repeating the same thing twice. I want the challenge I've never faced before. Um, so I took on clients for NLP session work, not calling it coaching. And over time, accidentally found myself with a practice. I mean, it, nobody was more surprised than me. I, you know, when it, at first it was like this sort of random session when I travel overseas, like, you know, someone in England would say, I'd like to do some work with you privately. Um, and so we'd stay late in, out in one of the seminar spaces and work for an hour or two. And then pretty soon it wasn't just one person one off. It was like almost every night there was a coaching session. 
And over time, I guess word of mouth uh, jumped around and pretty soon it was two or three or five calls a week. And pretty soon it was a couple calls a day. Um, and that's when I hit my own personal threshold for that's my sweet spot. I like doing 25% of my time on coaching uh, per week maximum. I don't like doing more than that personally. I love doing about that sweet spot. Mm -hmm. So I've set it up where uh, I've priced myself accordingly. I've structured my time accordingly where I'll max out 10, 10 hours a week. If I have to do more than that, it's not going to be coaching. It's going to be consulting. So if I have consulting and I go somewhere on site for an entire week or for three straight days, that's fine. I, I enjoy that too. Uh, but so each one is... Okay there. What, what is the distinction to you about what's the difference between coaching and, and consulting? So often with consulting, I'm either doing an on-site training or I'm working with a team of people that has some dysfunctional result going on. A team of people like in a, in a business, in a corporation? Or... Yes, Okay. Yeah, I've, I've really edged away from the personal side of NLP and more over to business applications of NLP oh. steadily over the past, I'd say, oh, five or six years. And even with that public transition, I'm still getting personal coaching requests and I take them. If they're interesting, if they're unique uh, and there's someone I who's, who's, uh, whose challenge appeals to me, I'll take that client. Uh, but I, you know, publicly, I brand as a as a business NLP consultant, business applications of NLP, and and so I get uh, team building issues. I get uh, uh, sometimes there are culture issues. One company acquires another. Uh, the second company is having problems that don't exist at the first location. So there's a culture war going on, or there's a culture issue that hasn't been solved. Sometimes I have to go in and work with the leaders of that team to to affect a, a major change in thinking. And so that whatever I do with that team will carry forward through time and, and, and propagate out to the rest of the organization, I had to change some of their meta programs for how they were thinking about working with people. I had to change some of the language they were using with other people. I had to change some of the beliefs that they were working with. So, so I'm thinking more systemically in terms of how teams interact and what is working and what isn't working and how can we uh, create change both at an individual and a team at a larger cultural or community level for an organization. Um, these kinds of group dynamics fascinate me. So let me just stop you there because the um, it, it sounds like way over my head for heaven's sakes. But um, are you applying like basically the um – the ideas of the from the AI going back there to like the, you know the systems thinking that's going on this equals that or this causes that and of course yeah. but I want to simplify it in the sense that I think I think of all the work that I'll do with teams applies to when I'm doing single person session work okay uh, which is to say that there are multiple levels of a person's organization right mm, you've got yeah. I mean whether you choose to use uh, Robert Diltz's uh, Logical levels, like you got identity, and then you've got beliefs and values, and uh, and of course abilities, capabilities, and then specific behaviors and environment. There are different levels. You could use that set of, of levels to work with, okay. or you could use chunking levels of department or person, uh, department or person relationship with their manager, that person's relationship with the manager, uh, and so the chunk level that you work with is always up to you. But at multiple levels, there are different kinds of functional behaviors and dysfunctional behaviors going on. 
There may be an effective culture, but an ineffective set of behaviors. There may be an ineffective culture, and everybody's aligned beautifully with that ineffective culture. Therefore, it's dysfunctional. Right, 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 exactly. Shrink it down to one person. I'm thinking of the holistic system of a person. Uh, where are they operating effectively? Where are they empowered? Where are they disempowered? Mm, mm. And so here's where the AI comes in. Think of this as reverse engineering a result. Uh, and this, some of this stuff comes from Richard and John and Rex and all the other wonderful folks that I've, I've had the opportunity to learn from, including you, sir, which is to say, uh, if you try to solve a problem from a problem state, you rarely get a solution that is generative, that is really going to carry a person or an organization forward. Therefore, you have to get people out of the problem state to come up with wonderful, optimal solutions. That's an operating belief I, I work from when I'm doing any kind of coaching or consulting work. So therefore, we go into our minds and, we, and or we, in, we interview a client and we come up with what would be an ideal solution state. And we try to get ourselves emotionally there. We try to get ourselves visually there, auditorily. Let's play out the kind of conversations, the kinds of interactions that would happen if things were going beautifully. Mm. And we generate a solution state. And I start reverse engineering backwards. This is my left side. Um, okay. Depending on where the camera's coming from, we're going to go okay. backwards from that, right? I'm not sure which way the camera reverses things or not. So uh, working from the future backwards, we ask the question, what would have to be there right before that in order to enable one step into that beautiful solution. Gotcha. What would have to be true right, right before that? And we keep working backwards until we get to something that resembles the now. So we generate solution paths, not forwards from the problem state, gotcha. but backwards from a solution state. So I'm always reverse engineering from a solution state. And because these are all if-then-means statements, we're actually getting not only decision trees, but the emotional values that have to be there. Mm -hmm. And often, when we come back to the now, we find that there's a lot of missing values that aren't playing out in the organization today. And that becomes the successful value set or the mission statement of the company is all the values that were not present in the path backwards from a solution. Right. So I'm absolutely using my AI background as a way of generating solutions for clients. Now, whether it's one client, single person, or a team, for me, it's the same thing structurally in my head. Right. right. And let me just stop you there again, because, you know, that process, you know, I, I've, I've totally done with, um, with people in a coaching situation. Of course. Individuals in this coaching situation where it's like, well, what is the, what is the outcome? Let's put yourself there. It's like, you know, if you're thinking you like, I want to climb to the top of the mountain. Okay. You're at the top of the mountain. Here you are. <laughs> what, what, what would have to have happened like one step before you got to the top of the mountain and, you know, so you yes. climb down, you know, metaphorically speaking, you know, you get to the goal, what has to happen before you get to the goal, before that, before that, before that, and sort of chunk it down. Absolutely. And, and by that way, you sort of create a strategy for how to get from here to there. Correct. And Indeed. Yeah. And that's been a you know highly effective way of, of, of creating outcomes for a coach and helping to get them there. So when it comes to this, this podcast called the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, if a person, if you were to imagine a person that's listening in, um, mm -hmm. has taken a coaching course from somewhere and or maybe they've taken NLP coaching or both. Um, what, what do you think a person really needs as, as an essential ability to, to really help a person, help a client become the best? In other words, to be the best coach 
for their client? What are what are essential skills or what's an essential skill or what are several essential skills a person needs to be the best coach they can be? I'm dancing over multiple answers. Uh, some of the things that I think are absolutely essential would be um, an ability to bring something to the interaction that they don't have. In other words, if I'm just like them, if I'm in the same state that they're in, I can't help them. Hmm. Probably not. But I, uh, the assumption, the operating assumption is a belief that I can help them because I have insights or perspective or strategies that they don't have. Okay. So, so that's one thing. Bit, it's essential to believe in yourself that you, you can. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Well, to, it's essential that I see evidence that, uh, worthy of believing in myself that I can help them. Right. Right. So, so I'm evaluating whether or not I have knowledge, perspective, strategies, ideas, uh, and a different perspective than they do, uh, that can be of service to them. Uh, if I don't have any of those things, if I don't feel like I have any insights, if I have no, um, if I don't think differently than they do, of course I will a little bit, but I need to see evidence. So that's one thing. Another thing is I don't take what the client wants at face value. I have a healthy disrespect for the presumed completeness of their request. Hmm. I love that. I have a healthy disrespect for the presumed completeness of their request. Yeah. In other words, a deep respect for the, for the individual in front of me. Yeah. And a healthy disrespect for the completeness. A lot of coaches, I think, and I don't know this because I don't supervise a lot of coaches, but I've seen this play out in NLP courses is people just accept the client's request at face value. Often. I don't. Well, I assume I may be fed something that is born from the problem state. That's one thing. Uh -huh. Another possibility is, is the client has already chosen what they think is the best means to an end and that they don't want to tell me what the end is, or they're just not used to uh, letting people in on the bigger, the bigger uh, picture. So often if somebody wants to um, uh, let's say they want to become healthier, right. Mm -hmm. um, and they tell you that they want to stop smoking or they tell you that they want to do this, you're getting a small piece of the picture and it may be that it's fine for you to just help them with one piece of it. But it may be that if you help them with one piece of it and don't interact with larger systems at play, that they're going to get no result at all. Or it may be that someone comes to you and says, I want to learn to better communicate with my spouse. And that that's, uh, that's one goal. But it may be that the bigger goal is not just communicating with the spouse, but interacting with the spouse. Maybe the bigger issue is learning to uh, respect others in general. Uh, and so the question is, is how much has the client chunked up and have they chunked up sufficiently to give you a fighting chance to really help them? So I often assume that what I'm hearing is just a means to an end and not the end. So how do you go about establishing what the end, real end is or the actual outcome ought to be? I'll often ask them, is that, the, the end purpose of what you're asking me for help with, or is there something bigger you're trying to achieve and you just think this is the best way of going about it? I often assume that I may have better ways of going about things. I don't necessarily know this. I'm just assuming I might. And so therefore, if I try to help them with something, they've already determined that they want to take that specific means to a specific end. And maybe they've failed already multiple times to, to create that specific means to an end. 
I don't want to repeatedly help them with something they failed to do. I may want to find a different path. So I asked them, is there something bigger than this? Uh, uh, if somebody um, who is trying to, um, to grieve, trying to get over um, a grand loss in their life, and that's something, of course, I'm not, I'm not a therapist. I, I, I'm not an expert on this. I just know that obviously we have to go through different processes to grieve. I've had to do this with, uh, with family members myself. And so uh, if they come to you not telling you that they're trying to get over a grieving process or get through a grieving process um, more healthfully, more helpfully, more perhaps even faster, uh, not saying that, they, that it can be eliminated, but it could potentially be speeded up. Um, Depression can be you know, reduced or eliminated or, or sped up into something else. And so therefore, if they tell us that they want to, um, uh, that they want to stop uh, staring into their cereal for an hour every morning, right? That they want to stop being immobile. Well, that's one specific means to an end, but there may be something much bigger that if we address the bigger thing, then the little things kind of fall into place. So what I'm hearing when I hear a, a desired outcome from a client, is I know that there's a big picture and what I may be hearing is the big picture, but I may also be hearing a very small piece of it. And it's possible that if I help them successfully with that small piece of it, but I don't help them with the bigger, the bigger chunk that we'll get nowhere. Right. So that sounds to me like this next question I would be asking you is um, kind of implicit in what you've already just said. Um, and that is part of being a, a successful coach is to have a business plan or a way of doing business, you know, a way of putting yourself out there in the world that you can, you can apply your skill set of being a coach. So that in other words, people pay you enough money that you make a living as a coach. It sounds to me like for, um, for you that when you interview a, a prospective client, that eventually you're going to come up with a sort of treatment plan, if you will, or, a, you know, coaching program that is certainly a lot more than one session um you, you're going to in some cases in, in just some cases yeah uh there are some there are some clients where they present something and i say we're going to knock this out in one session okay uh but it, but if i have a sense of doubt that it can be done in one session because i've done a lot in one session uh, you and i have uh, uh we when we were teaching a master practitioner course i think we worked with somebody's agoraphobia and uh, in one session, right? So, so some things can be acquired in one session and, uh, and some things not. So if I have a sense that it could take longer, I'll present that to them as an option. I'll say, listen, um, I don't guarantee a specific result in a specific amount of time. I guarantee that we'll make significant progress. Um, I also have a, a, an operating frame, which some coaches may not like, which is, if I don't get a result, I don't charge them. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So I tell them, listen, if we get nowhere together, uh, I'm not going to bill you. Now, I'm not going to let that go on for two hours. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to know in 15 to 30 minutes if we're making progress. Uh, my belief is I should not be charging unless I'm making significant measurable progress by both of our definitions. That means if you don't feel like we're making progress and we're 20, 30 minutes in and you think I'm just banging my head against the wall, making no progress for you, with you, 
uh, et cetera, I'm going to ask you, do you feel like this is valuable? Are we going down a, a useful track? If you tell me no, then I say, maybe I'm not the right guy for you. Let's part with a handshake. And if you tell me, yes, oh, this is really valuable. Let's keep going. Then we do. And I, ch- and I charge for my time. Okay. Uh, or, yeah. I think, I think it's, it's a frame that says, um, unless I'm getting a result, I don't deserve the hefty fee that I tend to charge. So, so if I'm getting a positive result and we're making measurable progress in the time we're spending, I feel incredibly good about charging for my work. And if I'm not getting a result and we figure this out relatively soon, uh, why should I be charging somebody for that work? Uh, so that's, that's a different frame than a lot of coaches like to use, uh, but, um, but it works for me and it feels congruent for me. And I think what it does do is it also builds strong referrals. Because when people refer me onto others, it's all word of mouth and the website. I, I don't I don't actively seek out clients anymore. Um, and so what they tell people, what friends will tell friends is this guy, he charges more than some. But if you if he's not right for you, you won't pay him a dime. People like hearing that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, because they're going to be paying for the results, not for the, the session. Yes, exactly. Um, j- do you mind sharing with the audience how much you charge? Uh, it's 300 an hour. Has been steady for a good 10 some odd years. After COVID, if things pick up, I might I might increase the rate. I've been pretty happy with that rate for a long time. So, yeah. Yeah. Nice. But it is an hourly rate you do, or session rate or? It's a session rate and it's absolutely prorated. So here, there's an example of uh, uh, one currently active voice coaching client, someone who works with me for improving his voice. It's uh, actually down in Australia currently. And what we've done is we've got uh, an hourly rate set up. It's, uh, he's, he's paid in a small retainer. And every 20 minutes, we do a call. Uh, I debit 20 minutes from the, from the fund. And uh, periodically, we, uh, we replenish it. Uh, there's another guy who, if someone's buying a lot of hours long in advance, uh, there's some discounts on that. So if somebody's buying 30 coaching hours in advance, uh, there's a significant drop in in rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's lots of ways to handle it. This one seems to work well for me. That's awesome. So, yeah, yeah very interesting that you you don't really advertise. You don't try to actively get coaching clients because it's you've, you've been owning it long enough, you've strong enough referral base that uh, mm-hmm. takes care of itself. Um, what do you suggest for somebody who isn't in that position? Because it's, you know, kind of a sweet position to be in. If somebody is starting off in the coaching business, what what do you think they need to do? To, um, you know. Without question, they need to get content out there. And the content needs to be valuable and unique to them. Uh, there is so much cookie-cutter garbage out there that just doesn't interest me. There are so many coaching websites with woo-woo language, with no measurable content, with no testimonials, uh, that it's, it's become that even the word coaching isn't the positive word at 100% as it used to be because there's so many coaches who have no, no custom niche. If somebody has a particular gift in a specific niche area, I would say get content out there. Offer your services for free to the first five or ten clients you get. Um, listen for people, you know, interact with people. Get out there, get your name out there, and learn who needs your help. Offer it for free for the first X number of people and say the only, this is normally going to be a such and such $100 an hour, $200 an hour uh, service. I'm waiving that fee because I'm looking for clients who are willing to give me testimonials. If we do great work together, if we get the result you want, will you give me a testimonial on video? And they say yes. 
now you've got not only written content, but also video content of people you've positively affected in this life. Okay. And that, and tell that us, becomes tell evidence. Little, tell us a little bit more about what you mean by getting content out there. So, uh, if you have a specific area of expertise, let's say you're a coach who helps, uh, who helps businesses brand, uh, helps people find their, their own brand, uh, start writing articles, start uh, recording videos or doing podcasts with people, proving your expertise. Um, it's one of the great benefits of your, your own podcast is not only are you sharing wisdom from a variety of, of voices, and I count myself lucky to be counted among some of the names you've been interviewing. It's wonderful. Um, and so by being an interviewer who connects with these people, not only are you sharing their wisdom with the world, you're also sharpening your own saw you're um, you're asking questions that that uh, that prove that you're also uh, a gifted, knowledgeable expert in these areas. Your your questions are insightful. They're targeted. They're uh, they're not reflective of a newbie. They're reflective of, of a, a wizened mind in this field. And so that that's a way of getting content out there, uh, just by being an interviewer of some wonderful people. Uh, you, you're you're being uh, your own uh, presence in this field is uh, is gaining in, in reputation naturally. So what I'm saying is write stuff, record stuff, put it out there, um, and it should not be cookie-cutter woo stuff. It should be a unique value that you have to share with the world. In my case, it's like the voice stuff because I had experience there or the knowledge engineering. I'm big into Find what's unique about you and share that with the world. And people who have a desire for learning what makes you uniquely good at something, they show up. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, yeah. Thank you, by, by the way, for that sharpen the saw reference. I'd forgotten that story. That is such a great, great story. Yeah. And I, that's a, I, I love tell, telling the story to people, but it's been a long time since I've told that one. So <laughs> thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah. My pleasure. No, it's fantastic. And gosh, yeah, it's really true. People, there's a lot of, like you said, coaches in general, a lot of people have taken those courses over the years. It is a growing field. And so it's imperative that a person set themselves apart from from the, the, the Thank you. great unwashed, I think is a phrase that um, has been handied about sometimes as well. <laughs> and I'm reminded a little bit about <laughs> Seth Godin's wonderful little tiny book, you know, The Purple Cow, which yeah. is like... If, if people are unfamiliar with that, Seth Godin wrote this book a number of years ago called The Purple Cow. The idea is, um, you know, if you're a city boy and, you're go, and you go for a drive in the country and you start seeing some cows, you go like, wow, look, cows. There, look, there's cows. Wow, cows. And then after an hour of this, it's like, oh, my God, if I see another cow. Right. But then if you see a purple <laughs> cow, it's like, oh, a purple cow. So you you need to find your purple cow. You need to find your USP, the unique selling proposition, you need to find, you know, what sets you apart so that you can be distinguished. And if you are an individual, because you are an individual, then you have that. You just need to identify that. Agreed. And, and not try, not try to be like somebody else who's doing their thing, but do your thing and, and put out the content and, you know, write the articles. Do you believe people need to have a, a website? Well, that's a tough call. I think, I think these days, almost everybody needs a website. Um, but if your aim is just to build yet another business card that's got, you know, your picture, uh, 
uh, a single page. It's a WordPress site that just scrolls down and has a picture of you, your bio, uh, your background, uh, and a couple of services and a contact page. While you need that, it's not going to generate business for you. So in other words, it's there to provide something on the web that people could look at if they've heard about you from elsewhere. But so a website that provides content is what you need. If you want the website to generate business for you, it needs to be content rich and valuable and not a cookie cutter thing. Um, But if you have a, a personal reference from somebody and you've got a cookie cutter website, that's fine. You need the referral to do the hard work in selling your service. Okay. But if you want the website to sell your service, it's got to be content rich. I like that idea of saying I, I, I give you the session for free if you'll provide a, te- a video testimonial. That's, yeah. that's a great strategy. I like that. Yeah, I wouldn't even qual- I wouldn't even word it that way. I wouldn't even say I'm giving it to you for free. I'm saying I'm waiving the hundred dollar oh, yeah, yeah. fee. Yeah, good. Yeah, waiving the yes. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Very cool. Uh, and you, of course, you say if if it's valuable to you, if we get the result you want. And if not, they don't have to do a video testimonial and then it's incongruent anyway. So it would just make everybody uncomfortable. And so you give away services until you have a collection of video testimonials that sell for you. It's always easier to sell as a third party for somebody else than to sell your own services. I don't know why that is uh, psychologically, but it is. I, I make the website sell for me. I, 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 um, I'm lucky enough to get invited to the occasional interview. You know, mm. this is wonderful. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for it, and I, uh, uh, I love you, brother. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> right back at you. So um, let's just have a, f- a few visitations. So, um, um I know that standing by right near you, you've got uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is is, is able to to stop in and say hello. Could could you? Um... Well, I don't know if he's here necessarily. Uh, sometimes uh, the voice uh, kicks in by itself, but I don't like it all the time. Yes. I'd rather do other voices. Like what? Like what other voices can you do? Well, I mean, one of my favorites is always always Chris Walken. Of he course. is good. I, I like the way you do him. It's it's quite. He complex. dances. He's, He's a, a dancer. dancer. Yeah, yeah. He, he likes music and moving. He's a little older now, but hey. he enjoys it. He's very good. So, who else? you do Donald Duck? Uh, I can't do Donald Duck well. No, I. I feel your pain, though. I, I know that there's some there's some presidents that cause it's a little unpopular to do him now. I know. So let's see. Um, I was working on a Barack Obama, but it's it's not very good, so I'll skip him for the time being. Uh, oh, I've got it. Uh, I know there's a guy whose voice you know. <laughs> I don't know how perfect it is, but uh, I'm working on it. That's good. I don't know who it is, though. Oh, okay. Well, uh, it's Al Pacino. Oh, oh Al Pacino. And, yeah, and he, yeah. And he tends to sound like this. That's true. That's good. He's got a high-pitched growl. I remember uh, Robin Williams once doing an imitation of Sylvester Stallone doing Hamlet. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, to be a what? You know? <laughs> There's a movie that came out recently. I can't recall the name of the movie. Uh, it was with um, Al Pacino and Chris Walken, and um, and also Alan Arkin. So there's Alan Arkin and there's Al Pacino. 
And then there's Chris Walken. And now I think I could recite an entire scene from that whole movie. <laughs> so just as a quick aside, this, yeah. there's, there's act, this is fun, of course, but this is actually help, helping a yes. person to develop vocal flexibility. And when you're doing hypnosis, when you're doing trances, when you're doing public presentations, you need to be able to access your vocal flexibility. Indeed. Yes. So uh, I joke about this because I've got the Finding Irresistible Voice CDs, but I think of this as finding somebody else's irresistible voice. <laughs> and what is fascinating to me is I might be having immense trouble getting somebody to stretch a little bit, but if I get them to stretch a lot, it's easy for them. So there's something about the, I don't know if you want to call it the deep trance identification aspect of uh, doing somebody else's voice. But if I'm talking to someone and they're talking with me and I ask them to add a little bit more, uh, more warmth into their voice, they might add a little bit more warmth to their voice, but might have trouble getting, getting to this, for example, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to um, now try to do, um, uh, let's say, uh, can you do a Pee Wee Herman voice? Uh, I meant to do that, you know, so, or whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, if you adopt a whole different persona, you're naturally at a very, mm. very high chunk level going to affect many vocal characteristics at the same time. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, it's the same thing with learning accents. If, uh, if you ask somebody to learn an accent, a foreign accent, whether it's English or one of many English accents or Scottish or Irish or Australian or what have you, uh, often um, they will attempt to to create an English accent based on what they're spelling, which is not going to sound right. But if you musically adopt uh, the, the qualities of another accent, then you get to things like this. You can actually change your voice so it sounds a bit more like that. Or uh, maybe you can go, uh, go down under and uh, uh, add a little bit of growl to the voice and suddenly you're uh, from Melbourne or maybe you're from, or maybe you're from Sydney. Um, whatever it is that is you there do. Is a difference between Sydney and Melbourne? Uh, Sydney, Melbourne, Brissy's got its own voice. And then Western Australia is more like this. It's WA, right? Which doesn't only stand for, sound, uh, stand for, um, well, for Western Australia. It also stands for uh, wait a while. So things are a little slower in Western Australia right. uh, and would show up in the voice a little bit differently. So, yeah, uh, there's, there are different aspects. And I'm probably going to get a few of the nuances a little bit wrong because I'm a little rusty. Uh, but, um, but yes, if you, if, you, if you change your voice at a higher level, you're, you're naturally going to affect things meta down the, down the line, smaller chunk, automatically. That's so cool. Yeah, it's pretty so, neat. Jonathan, it is really a great pleasure to have you on this, on this podcast. Just for um, the edification of the listeners at home, if they want to find you, Um, How would they go about that? Well, there's multiple ways. They can go to my main website, which I'm in the process of shifting over 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 the next year, really, uh, maybe six months, altfeld.com. So my last name, A-L-T-F-E-L-D.com. But I am, I also have geniusmapping.com. No spaces, geniusmapping.com. And geniusmapping is the newest version of the knowledge engineering material. It's KE 2.0. And I am finally replacing my, uh, my existing NLP website over the next, uh, let's say, half a year. Not quite sure of the precise timeline, but we're mapping it out now to NLPMasteryInsight.com. So that'll be coming soon. It's not, I've got the domain, but I haven't yet fleshed it out. Um, Mastery Insight Institute is what you used to have, right? Mm-hmm. No, it, well, it was altfelt.com was the website. 
Mastery Insight Institute is, I'm keeping the name Mastery Insight, but the website will be NLP Mastery Insight. And will that be hyphens or anything in there? Nope. Nope. All just letters. Very, very good. Thank you for asking. It is such a joy to chat with you. Um, I, here we are remotely far apart, but uh, it is a pleasure to connect with you again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jonathan Altfelt, thank you for being here. Doug O'Brien, always a pleasure. Thank you. This has been the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure seeing you again. Hope to see you again real soon. Come back next week when we have another gripping and exciting episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. And if you want to, you can find out more about us, each and every one of us, at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Thanks.